You're listening to the home of cool, irreverent, and entertaining talk right here on L.A. Talk Radio. You're listening to The Art of Love with your host, Lucia, right here on L.A. Talk Radio. To the art of love. My name is Lucia, your host and dating and relationship expert. And I'm here to entertain, educate, and enlighten you about love, dating, relationships, take your live calls, answer your emails, and speak to authors of books which I find interesting. And as usual, I have another very interesting topic. This week it's about combining passion and reason. You don't usually hear the two talked about. It seems that people think that they are mutually exclusive. But I found that uh, passion without reason can be dangerous, and reason without passion is boring. So is it possible to combine the two? Well, we're going to find out. The name of the book is The Selfish Path to Romance. That's right, The Selfish Path. How to Love with Passion and Reason. Inspired by the ideas of Ayn Rand. And uh, there's two authors. There's Edwin Locke and Ellen Kenner. Edwin Locke, Ph.D., is a noted and widely published scholar in the field of psychology with 15 years of clinical experience and more than three decades as a professor of psychology and of management at the University of Maryland. He earned his Ph.D. from Cornell and his B.A. from Harvard. (laughs) And uh, Alan Kenner, Ph.D., is a licensed clinical psychologist with a private practice in Rhode Island and host of the nationally syndicated radio talk show, The Rational Basis of Happiness. She earned her Ph.D. from the University of Rhode Island and her B.A. from Brown University. So we have some heavy hitters here today to discuss this uh, very interesting topic. So welcome to the show, guys. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you for having us. My pleasure. So... um, how did the two of you come together to write this book? We've known each other probably 40, 35 years. We met at an Ayn Rand conference one summer, I believe. Was that true, Ellen? Right, I think and in the early years out in uh, California. And we kept uh, in touch over the years because we're both yeah. psychologists. And um, I forget how we got interested in this. Well, I can tell you that one. Okay, um, you It's tell. a little bit more than that. Ed was, he didn't know it, but I had attended wonderful courses that he gave back, back at that, during that time period, that initial time period, on how to make your life better. And I just used his guidance, and it was just helping me tremendously. I even had a picture of him. Uh, he was in, it was in an wow. audience scene on my uh, right outside my kitchen door as kind of in, as inspiration, and then years later I started teaching at objectivist conferences. Objectivism is Ayn Rand's philosophy, and once a year they would have conferences in the summer, and I taught everything from relationships to psychological self-defense. You know how to deal with difficult people to parenting. Ed attended one of my romance courses. I don't know if you remember that, Ed, and you contact you came up to me after. And just ran the idea by me. Do you want to write a book together? And I said, sure. 
Wow. And, and it started uh, that way. And here we are. Okay. So, what... And here we are with a book <laughs> in our hands now. That's uh, right. And what... I think another factor involved, uh, Ellen's memory is better than mine, of course, um, but another factor involved that um, I got remarried um, and really was a very good marriage, and I learned a lot about romance from my wife, which I really didn't know um, my whole life. So that was an extra inspiration for me to uh, show people what I'd learned. And not everything in the book is from Ayn Rand. Some of it's just from our own personal and clinical experience. But the fundamental ideas, including the one you mentioned to start with, are from Ayn Rand because one of the things she explained, um, and most psychologists don't get it to this day, is emotions are not mysterious, and they're not primaries that can't be understood. They're, they stem from subconsciously held ideas. And so if you introspect well, you can account for every emotion that you have, and when you fall in love with somebody, you can identify the reasons for it, which is which is very important for reasons which we can get into later if you want. Right, definitely. So you say that romantic love is uh, based on the need for visibility. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Well, you can you can see yourself as a physical being in the mirror, as Aristotle said, but you can't really see yourself objectively as a psychological being, you know, as a person of uh, consciousness and matter. And so other people's response to you by appreciating uh, your values and and um, and uh, showing their recognition of your values and your actions give you a perspective on yourself, both as a male or female and as an individual that you can't get from the inside. So it's not the same thing as approval. Uh, it's, it's not that you need extra self-esteem from another person because you don't have any. It's like when a person says, I really like the way you stood up in that meeting and spoke your mind when it was very unpopular. I really admire that. If you value independence in yourself, that person's giving you visibility. Right. And I can jump in and add something, uh, Lucia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead. And that's that if you think of a relationship that's gone bad, one of the thing one of the first things you hear is I, I don't feel like I'm important in his life anymore. I'll use a him in this case. Um, in his life anymore. I don't feel understood, I don't feel cared for, I don't feel treasured, I don't feel I I feel invisible. I feel like I'm not there, like he's leading his life without me. And that is such an empty, hollow, painful feeling to be in a close relationship where it's like you don't matter. You know, even even if you're a child in a family where it's obvious that your mother doesn't like you, you can get that feeling of invisibility. In a romantic relationship where you pick your partner, hopefully you pick them the person well, you want to feel the opposite of that invisibility. You want to feel as though your partner gets you and they admire you for what you love about yourself. That's the mirror image. They're not... Mm-hmm. faking that you're better than you are, it's accurate, and they see your the things that you want to improve, and that's okay, and they're, they're a good friend, they're a cheerleader and supportive of you. That type of visibility is so hard for, for two people to work out together, mm-hmm. and it's so delicious when you can achieve it. 
And why is it so hard to work that out? Um, well, I think, can, I think, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I think oh. because um, people are taught that love is an emotion, so once you fall in love, you go on, you go on automatic, mm. and therefore you don't have to do anything. And one of the themes of our book is that it takes conscious work to sustain that initial romantic attraction over the over the years. And one of the ways you do that is you keep making your partner uh, visible to you in all the ways you can. So would that mean that you just notice little things about them? Oh, little yeah. and big. Yeah, little, little and big. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're willing to name them. I know people who will notice good things in another person and maybe share it with other people, but not share it with the most important person, the one they love. Right. And you want the opposite policy. I mean, you don't want to sound phony and you don't want to do it in that context. But if I like to think of it as the roll off the tongue method, that if I see something I love about my husband, I just let those thoughts roll off my tongue. Very nice. And I just let him hear it right right away rather than just silently keep quiet, make the observation and move on. And he never knows it. It's, it's like someone gives you a wonderful gift of something colorful or creative or some character trait that you love and you never write them a thank you note. Right. Now, and you can apply this, like, uh, let's say your spouse comes home from work and tells you, a really good experience, and, and my wife does that. She's very highly respected at her work, and I say, you know, good for you, sweetheart. You know, I know you're a person people trust and that you're conscientious, and I'm so glad they're they're recognizing that in you. So I'm giving her visibility uh, sort of like they are, um, but it means probably more to her for me uh, that recognizes the virtues that made her success possible. And Edwin, you mentioned that you know people think that love is an emotion. So is it an emotion or is it something else? Sure, it's an emotion, but it's emotion with causes. And if you introspect, you will find that your response to a person is is affected by the ideas you hold, which maybe may you're conscious of, maybe not. Like uh, my wife first was attracted to me by my integrity, because she worked, you know, I was at the University of Maryland. She was a grad student there. And we worked together, but, you know, as uh, strictly strictly officially. And um, what I admired about her was her uh, honesty and her taking values seriously and her conscientiousness, uh, as well as, you know, I thought she was also beautiful. But, that you know, beauty alone isn't enough. No. Um, okay, so let's talk about games, because, you know, there's a lot of single people that listen and... Uh, a lot of people that are playing games or think they have to play games. And you say that in your book, people who are genuine are far, far more likely to have authentic love relationships than those who are always playing a role. So what do you mean? Yeah, this is a very important point. And there's lots of books you can buy that say how to, and including by very famous people, how you can put on a show to make the guy attracted to you. And I've always thought this is a terrible piece of advice. You have to you have to be yourself, and and just naturally come to know the other person, and the same for them. And if you try to do role playing tricks, it's going to wear off really fast. So it's, I think it's a very bad advice. You know, be yourself, be polite. You know, be a good listener. Get to know the person, and then see what happens. 
Right. And you have to live a double life, too. You you know who you are internally, and then you're faking that you're better than you are or different than you are just to please the other person. And that's going to break down in time. First, you have to have double bookkeeping, who you really are, (laughs) and then who you're faking you are. Mm -hmm. And so it's a lie. It's a web of lies that you're weaving. And the other person, if they respond to what they think are good traits in you, and you really don't believe you have those good traits yourself, if they say, oh, you're so honest, and you know you just lied to your partner, Mm. it's going to sound hollow anyway. So it's if you... It doesn't mean you have to be perfect, but you can be working on yourself, you know, improving the things that you want to get better. You know, maybe you want to lose a little weight. Maybe you want to get more organized or something. You don't have to fake that you're fully organized, and your partner can be the same. You know, you're both works in progress and loving each other and enjoying life together. Uh, so you, the, the game playing just breaks down very quickly. So what should someone do if they want to be genuine, and they are genuine, but the other person that they're dealing with is playing games or being manipulative? Don't find another date. <laughs> okay. find, find another date. <laughs> Don't waste time. If you're, if you're in a relationship like that mm-hmm. and there aren't extenuating circumstances, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody had been highly abused and they just it's very difficult for them to let down their guard and you want to stay with them and help them be authentic, okay, but if you find catch them in lies, that's a relationship breaker. If you find somebody faking other than, you know, um, pretending they're honest when they're not, that's not good. There is a type of faking that goes on all the time that I think is much more tragic, though, than what we're talking about. We're talking about deliberate lying mm-hmm. and manipulating and trying to hook a partner. Mm-hmm. And the faking that I think is really tragic is... Um, is what Ayn Rand uh, calls altruism, otherism, where you don't have any permission to live for yourself. You're only a good moral person if you live for others. So bring that into a romantic relationship, and the wife has to please the husband. Mm -hmm. And she has to have sex the way the husband wants it. She has to have dinner made the way the husband wants it. We want to think that in our culture that this is behind us, but being a therapist, I can tell you it's not. Wow. And that altruism, that faking niceness when you're not really feeling it, but you think it's moral to fake that you're really happy to go on the vacation your husband chooses even though you hate fishing, (laughs) for the fishing vacation, It, it breaks down. And what I see later on in therapy are women who come in who say, you know, I've done for everyone else my whole life. And this formerly sweet woman who had a, a smile pasted on her face is has now become embittered and it's like I've done for my kids I've done for my husband I've done for everyone else and now it's time for me but she's so angry at herself in the world that she can't be she can't she doesn't have a footing to know how to be rationally what we what Ayn Rand would call self selfish self-valuing self-nurturing you know having self-esteem Ayn Rand never uses the word selfish as a me only narcissistic or manipulative person she uses it in the highest sense and in fact the uh, altruistic person who's always trying to serve is going to have a magnetic attraction for the narcissist because he can get all the hero unearned worship he wants but the problem with the narcissist is He'll tire of it very fast because he needs constant admiration, and so he'll eventually get bored. And so it's a double negative on both sides. 
Can you give the definition of a narcissist? I think we all basically know what it is, but it's good to have a definition from you. Somebody who is um, me-centered, but not in a healthy way, not in a self-respecting way, but a kind of desperate way that needs constant reinforcement, uh, constant worship, constant attention. He has grandiose fantasies about how good he is. Uh, he, he has to have people kowtow to him. He's often boastful. Uh, it's not always men, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, this person doesn't make a good romantic partner because he's so desperate for uh, filling the void where his real self-esteem should have been that um, he can't value other people. He's too desperate about himself. And so he doesn't know how to value another person, uh, you know, as an equal. And, of course, the altruist falls right into the trap. And um, so it doesn't work for either of them. So uh, selfishness, in our sense, is not narcissism, but self-respect. Right. And with narcissism, too, the person is hasn't, uh, even though they look very boastful, you'll see some politicians who are phenomenal narcissists. Mm-hmm. I don't mean phenomenal in a good sense. But they're, uh, many of them are empty. I'm not saying they can't be a good politician, but you can... Uh, they they don't have genuine self-esteem. They've not earned the character traits so that they can sit back and admire themselves properly. And so they're envious of other people, so they always have to prove how much better they are, so they get along in the world by putting other people down, too, and they feel so entitled, like, you've got to give it to me, I'm, I'm deserving of it. They exploit other people. They're just... Um, uh, if you have one of those in your life, you want to uh, try to uh, separate from that person ASAP, right? Because right. it doesn't get any better. Um, so what are some things that build a person's self-esteem? I think the fundamental is uh, the proper use of your own mind to make decisions, to choose your own values, to stand up for your uh, beliefs, to plan your life, to um, make yourself skilled so you can have a good career, to make financial plans, to choose your own friends, uh, as opposed to mental passivity and what usually ends up a second head in this, you're a crowd follower. So you simply do anything that anyone else wants in order to get approval or to feel like you belong, but you don't have genuine values of your own. You don't have a self. And that kind of person is going to feel uh, continual self-doubt. And then we'll look for other people to fill the void. And the problem is other people, other than clinical psychologists who might help them, uh, other people can't do it, especially not their spouse. So they've got to become a person with a self using their own mind first, and then they have a chance at a good romance. If they're empty and riddled with anxiety and doubt, the other person's not going to solve that. Right. We have a whole chapter in our book, The Selfish Path to Romance, on a whole section, actually, on making yourself lovable. How, you know, what character traits do you want to build in yourself so that you feel like you're grounded. You feel like you you feel that self-esteem. You're not faking it. You're feeling it, experiencing it, and it's not. It's nothing like the narcissist. Usually, people who have are who have self-esteem are quiet. They're con- they're 
quietly confident. doesn't mean they're a quiet person, but mm-hmm. they're confident. They don't have to show off all the time. And the qualities that you want to build in yourself are what Ayn Rand has identified as uh, core virtues, uh, which are honesty, integrity, uh, being productive, you know, having a purpose in your life that you enjoy, and thinking for yourself, having a good sense of justice rather than just uh, always being, always saying, oh, shucks, it's just me, you know, putting yourself down Mm -hmm. or, yeah. And, pr- and pride. A sense of pride, that's what I meant, yeah. Pride in your virtues, as opposed to, you know, the religious people claim pride is the worst sin you can have. We think it's the highest virtue, because if it means earned. you've made your own character uh, good. Right, if it's way. earned. Not, not if it's earned, real pride, not fake pride. Right. Um, what about, like, someone who's unfaithful, uh, or someone who's a player who has to date a lot of women or a lot of men, do you think it's due to a low self-esteem? Uh, I think so. Uh, yeah. Besides, if he's married and doing it, he's also dishonest. So he's got a person of low character. If your relationship isn't going well, you should say so. Say, I have problems. I'm not happy. Should we go to counseling? Should we get separated? But just cheating is trying to fake your marriage by pretending you're married when you're really not committed. And same if the woman does it. So. Uh, uh, that that's going to undermine uh, both your character. And if you have bad character, uh, you can't have a good marriage because, for instance, if you don't have honesty, you don't have trust. And how can you have a romance with no trust? Right. right. You uh, mentioned the word player. What do you mean by that? Someone who plays the field? Yeah, someone who um, maybe dates a lot of women but pretends that he is interested in a relationship with you know all of them, but he's not. Okay. Well, uh, there's one wonderful movie. What was it, Outrageous Fortune, where the two women that one man is courting Mm -hmm. get together. One of the women is Bette Midler, Uh so you can imagine. Uh And it is so great when they discover each other. Bette Midler's very raunchy, and the other woman's very prim and proper, a ballerina. (laughs) And so when these two women find each other, the guy is, uh, he's toast. (laughs) Right, which is usually what happens. Right, right. They, they're living a lie, and they have to. They're aware of that every waking moment. Every, you know, it, it's such a huge lie. They have to worry about the women bumping into each other. They, if they take pride in being a player, then they will never be able to look in their own psychological mirror because what they'll see is a person they don't admire. So they will try to seek out other players to try to justify their own behavior, like, well, everybody does this, don't they? And they will really resent and envy a person of integrity who wouldn't cheat. Wow. Now, you also say that true romantic love is egoistic. What does that mean? It's based on self-valuing, not on sacrifice. So we don't consider that sacrifice is proper in a romantic relationship in any way. So, and and of course, people have been taught that self-sacrifice is the essence of romance, and we have several examples in our book, but let's take a simple one to start with. Let's say you're a woman, and you absolutely love your career. The man says, I want you to give it up and stay home, so you sacrifice it. Well, um, and that's going to make the woman uh, resentful, purposeless, bored, um, who knows, Mm -hmm. And, and, and 
if the man loves her and 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 understands egoism, he should say that's wonderful that you love your career. I think that's great. Um, uh, it's both of us love our work. If we're going to have children, we'll work together on how we're going to handle that. But in the meantime, uh, do something that you you really love, and um, that should be the party's attitude toward each other, not only for. Uh, careers, but for vacations, movies, books, furniture, housing, money, you know, work together as a team. And you may not agree, we have a long discussion of how to deal with conflict. Uh, you may not agree, but at least you can respect each other and hopefully work out a system where both people can have most of what they value instead of one person giving up everything for the other. So basically, you're talking about obviously compromise. Yeah, compromise without compromising something that's really, really important. Yeah, you always have to compromise on on little things because you have habits that annoy somebody, so fine, you change those. But you don't compromise on things that are really important, and you, and you never compromise on moral issues. Right. Um, and, you know, you spoke about conflict, and, um, you know, I was reading a post uh, this woman wrote on Facebook, and basically she was um, engaged to this guy, and then they got into a fight about where they were going to live because they were living on opposite coasts at the time, mm-hmm. and, and then he took the ring back. And so my thought on it was, like, mm-hmm. wow, if, you're, if you can't even agree about where you're going to live before you're married, I mean, you probably shouldn't even be getting married. What do you think? Yep, he probably wa- he wanted her to be the sacrificial one. Now, this problem is it comes up. I have friends who've had this problem. Let me tell you what the successful ones do. They they keep their jobs. They meet on weekends in St. Louis because it's halfway. Right. The, and they work on solutions that will make them both happy, such as one of them might find a really good job on the other coast, but not right now, and sometimes they have to go, I know somebody who waited seven years. Uh, they weren't on opposite coast, but they were in different cities, and they worked for seven years and finally worked it out. So uh, they were both respectful of the other, and finally they were able to live in the same place. So that's the approach to uh, problem solving and uh, conflict, and the same can happen if you have disagreement over vacations. Uh, my wife... Um, doesn't like movies with violence, so I go. If I want to see those, I go by myself, um, and I don't mind uh, the kind of movies she likes, so I go with her. So that's a compromise, but it, I don't mind it. I wouldn't right. want her to see a movie she hated. Right. Uh, um, were you going to say something, Ellen? Uh, just that it, it's rationally compromising, and there are so many different ways to do that. Uh, it can be my turn this time. We'll eat at my restaurant tonight. Your restaurant tomorrow night, or you know next week. Uh, you can say, um, why don't we each go to our own restaurants and then we'll meet up and go to one that we mutually like, a very different one. Or you know there are different ways to compromise that are um, that are well known that couples can you know, couples can use those ways. Um, and so being egoistic, it. it sounds like it's something negative getting back to your first point you know mm-hmm. why would you say egoistic because it sounds like both you're going to have two hot-headed people in mm-hmm. the same marriage or the relationship right. and it's not that way at all that's the miss uh that's how egoism has been miscast as has the word selfishness 
which we use in the title of our book. Uh, but instead, that's precisely what you need. You need to have a self. You need to be able to value yourself, to nurture yourself, to think that you're worthy of and capable of enjoying your life. And Ayn Rand has a quote, to say, I love you, one must first know how to say the I. Mm. So, <laughs> so you can look at marriage as we view it as egoism for two. It's ego, and both people can cherish each other. I mean, it sounds yeah. like it, it, our yeah. title. I mean, we have such a provocative yeah. and controversial title if yes. you're unfamiliar with I mean, love is, a, love is a very selfish emotion. You're saying to the other person, I value you more than anyone in my whole life, and you make my life meaningful. You give me happiness. What could be more egoistic than that? Versus saying, I don't really like you that much. I don't care for you. You're kind of ugly, fat. <laughs> I don't like your character, but I feel sorry for you, so I'm going to sacrifice myself and marry you. Now, who would be tempted by a proposal like that? Right, and if the other partner said, yeah, I feel the same way about you, too. Oh, <laughs> and how many, but how many long-term married couples stay together when they feel that way towards each other? You know, so, right. so um, the idea that... It, uh, Egoism and selfishness have been words that have destroyed so many good people because they, everybody runs from the word selfish. Your mm -hmm. parents say, is that selfish? You want that just for yourself, don't you? And the kid doesn't know enough to say, yeah, I do, Mom. I really uh, love dancing or I really love X, Y, Z. And uh, they, that's selfish. You should always share. Or, you mm -hmm. know, other people are more important. And so they, the parents, we've been taught from a very young age that our self, there's something immoral about wanting something for yourself and moral about only doing for other people, as opposed to it being moral to be properly self-valuing, rationally self-valuing, and never taking advantage of anyone else and not becoming a doormat for other people to step on. So, you know, we used a provocative title, and again, if you didn't, if you haven't read Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, or her nonfiction book, The Virtue of Selfishness, you're going to be clueless and you'll look at our title mm -hmm. and say, huh, <laughs> what are you guys, crazy? Our title is The Selfish Path to Romance, How to Love with Passion and Reason. And when you value yourself and your partner values him or herself, you learn to cherish each other and it's a win-win situation. Right, because also if you are doing what you want to do and you're happy, you're you know you're selfish and so you're happy, then you're a happy person to be around and you're more likely to want to make your partner happy as opposed to you're much more benevolent. Absolutely, more benevolent. And whereas if you sacrifice, how do you feel if your partner wants to do go golfing, you're and you've just sacrificed for him this whole past week? You went on his vacation and he wants to go golf now. You look at him and say, well, that's pretty selfish of you when I need the garbage taken out. Right. You've got stuff around the house to do. You didn't mow. And so you try to weigh each other down with guilt. And Ayn Rand calls that unearned guilt. When you get in a pad, into a pattern in a relationship of needling one another with unearned guilt, well, why didn't you do this? You didn't call your mother. You didn't do this. It's, you need to be able to differentiate between guilt that is earned. You lied. You cheated, like in the case mm -hmm. of the affair versus just trying to make a person feel guilty when they've really done nothing wrong other than wanting to uh, get some pleasure out of their own life without hurting you. Right. Now, Edwin, you mentioned earlier a bit about something about a partner being overweight. Um, so let's say you're, you're married or you're dating and your partner, you know, starts to gain weight, 20, 30, 40, mm -hmm. 50 pounds. 
how the hell do you tell them that it bothers you, or do you? Well, it's a very good question. In fact, there was a Ask Amy column some time ago. The woman gained 100 pounds, Ooh. and the man asked her to move into another bedroom. Another house. He, he was turned off, the husband, and the uh, correspondent said, that shows you how shallow the man was. But actually, he wasn't, because taking pride in your appearance and health, insofar as it's in your control, is actually virtuous, and it's good for you. And to look nice for your partner is something that if you love them, you want to do. And in addition to which, um, being severely overweight, as is well now shown, puts you at terrible risk for disease, including diabetes, heart disease, stroke, and many kinds of cancer. So being extremely overweight is not only unattractive, it's it's like it's not quite as bad as smoking, but it's committing slow suicide. Mm-hmm. So it's in your self-interest to want to appear nice uh, at proper weight, eat healthily. Now, if your partner is sliding into that, um, obviously you need to be extremely tactful and, and careful. You don't want to be insulting. Mm-hmm. And um, Ellen, you probably have the best way of approaching it. So maybe you um, want to. Well, we had to do it in our own marriage because both my husband, neither of us, have ever been over overweight. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first married, when we first married, though, we've been married 38 years now. Wow. I cooked and I I mean I went to gourmet cookbooks and I must have used more fat more butter more uh, unhealthy foods uh-huh. at the time you know that was in vogue I, I couldn't wait to be a housewife right. I didn't know what it was like right. from the inside uh, and he put on 20 pounds the first year and I put on some weight too and it we both just very supportive supportively uh, said that we are more attracted to each other with less weight on and we both worked with each other it wasn't one of those you keep picking on me because of my weight so there are there are ways that you can lovingly address this with a partner i stopped cooking cold turkey i know that sounds funny but i did (laughs) (laughs) Um, and another problem though sometimes weight masks other problems Mm -hmm. for example if a woman is always sacrificing in the area of sex and the husband wants her to look hot all the time, a real turn on, you know, put on those heels, put on the short skirts, put on the fishnet stockings, do this, do that, do the other. And you start to see her putting on weight because she doesn't know how to give herself a voice to say, hey, I really don't like this. I really enjoy sweats and dungarees at times, honey, and I don't like these heels. And I like to dress up sometimes, but I'm beginning to hate it. If the if she doesn't know how to find a voice, sometimes the weight is one way to protect herself from all of this, the unwanted sexual advances and having sex in ways she doesn't enjoy. So it's sometimes not just the surface issue of uh, of just with us. You know, I was cooking, <laughs> just cooking all mm-hmm. the time. For some people, it's uh, it's focused on it's related to other issues, including uh, sex. Sometimes it's a his, the person's had a history of abuse too. And, and the other, and the other side of that same coin, she might be doing it from neglect. Mm-hmm. Like, why bother? He doesn't care about me anymore. Right. So why oh, bother? It's different. Nice. 
right. If a husband doesn't pay any attention, it's just, you know, he doesn't care. I dress up for him all the time. He doesn't care. I'm just going to let myself go. They can be, or they can lose a job and they feel very low, and so they're eating a lot more. It could be outside stressors. They have 20 kids underfoot and not getting enough help, and the only thing that feels good is that pasta meal. So, you know, you really have to look at the individual situation, uh, and that's the point sometimes. Mm. It isn't just the right. what like on the surface. Right. Okay. So moving on, you said that the best proof of whether a person loves you is how that person acts towards you on a daily basis. So what do you mean by that? Well, we want to separate it from nice words mm. uh, because anyone can say nice words. Right. But the question is, do they act Do they act in a loving manner? So, for instance, they can say, I love you, and then go out and have an affair an hour later. Uh, so... Uh, what do they do on a daily basis? Do they listen to you? Or are they interested? Do they want to do things with you? Do they want to make love with you in a romantic way? Do they do they want to make joint decisions with you? Do they, do they remember your birthday, your anniversary, special occasions? Uh, do they want to uh, take you on a special date? Um, do they show? Do they make you feel visible? emotionally, sexually, intellectually. So all of those um, factors are actions you have to take. Uh, but just keep saying, I love you, and then not doing those actions. People always understand, everybody understands it's the actions that count. Same thing in your boss. If your boss says you're really a great employee, treats you like, you know what, um, you believe the actions. Mm-hmm. Because it's hypocrisy, and people right. are very good hypocrisy detectors. Right. I think uh, if there's a sense of feeling connected to that person, when you feel that emotional intimacy, that bond with the person, it's it, that is something that you achieve. That feeling comes from a summation of doing, maybe having a couple's activity that you do together regularly and coming home at the end of the day and feeling like the climate, the weather at home is sunny. I mean, you mm. can both have bad days, but it, overall it's sunny. It's You're not walking into a war zone when you come home at night or it's not stormy, if we go back to the weather me- metaphor. You want to create an atmosphere where um, on a daily basis you both you mutually feel cherished. There's something that goes on that's nice. You know, when people leave in the morning, many times it's, a couple, you know, a husband can or a wife can walk out the door or a boyfriend, girlfriend, and uh, just not say anything. They just go off to work. Mm-hmm. And if they just took two minutes to go over and just say, bye, hon, and give each other a kiss, it's a small gesture, but those small gestures mount up. Uh, for example, I'll come home at night, and very often my husband is there. He opens the door and lets um, the puppy that we're babysitting right now, my son's dog, go dashing out towards me. And I love that. I feel so visible by both of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> my husband more, obviously. Obviously. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, have you guys heard the, f- um, the phrase, romantic love is the only acceptable form of insanity? And would you agree? No. What? <laughs> <laughs> Ed, you want to take that? Then I'll jump in after. Uh, I think what they're um, confusing is the fact uh, when you first fall in love, especially if you're a teenager, you can experience what's called infatuation. 
I know because it happened to me <laughs> as a teenager. And your whole life has changed. Your whole worldview has changed. You're just out of your mind. Um, you can't think straight. Um, you're just waiting for every second to see and be with the person. But um, real love is deeper uh, than infatuation. It's based on deeply held values that you both share, deeply held view of life that you both share, uh, style, uh, your personal style that you both share, personalities that are compatible, visibility that you both give each other. And, and if you're good at introspection, you identify all of the things that they're doing that make you feel that way, and they do the same. So it's actually, uh, I would say, love at root is based on rationality. But it's not, I don't mean that it's not emotional, it is emotional, but the emotions are understood and emotions are based on common values on both parts. So an, ins an insane person would be in some way having something, some kind of irrational value, would have some kind of massive self-doubt, would have some kind of infatuation, and uh, wouldn't be thinking clearly about what's going on. But that's not real love. Okay, so I think often what's happening then is people are infatuated, and yeah. they think they're in love. Yeah, and of course the first thing you get infatuated with is, is always looks, right. because it's the first thing you notice, and we're in favor of looks. But it's not the whole story. There's yeah. a lot more to it than and, that. And I never want to demean those initial uh, moments in your life when you discover that you have a crush on somebody, you know, young love. Mm -hmm. I think that those are wonderful, and those form the budding, that's the, your, your uh, budding awareness of what romantic love is about. And that doesn't mean you have all the tools and skills to be able to identify the best partner for you. I fell in love with a lifeguard at a pool when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. I just thought he was the hottest guy I'd ever seen. I still remember his name, <laughs> Saul. And yeah, I don't know where he is now. He was much older than me, but he was my hot throb. And that feeling it has never left me. I can still enjoy my memories of, as a kid, just thinking that he was the neatest guy. He knew how to dive and swim, and he had such a nice-looking body, and and I just, he had such a good mannerism about him. Just very playful and yeah. just really nice. And I would never take that away from me and call it infatuation, even though, yeah. you know. I mean, I still remember my, I, mean, I still remember my very first love and uh, a fond memory, even though it didn't last and, and it couldn't have. But I still have fond memories uh, because there were some very pleasant, wonderful things that happened to me. But um, I now realize why breaking up, which was initiated by her, was in fact the right idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, it wouldn't have worked out. Right, yeah. What about people that say that relationships are hard work? Do you agree? Absolutely. But it's hard work yeah, with a tremendous payoff. So and it hard can be work interesting means, hard work. Yeah. Hard work doesn't mean drudgery all the time. Uh -huh. you're, you're learning about yourself. You're learning about each other. You're getting a lot of aha moments. Oh, now I understand you. I was re thinking I could read your mind, and I really thought you were putting me down, and now I understand you weren't. That was actually a compliment. You know, you, you need to know how to communicate well and to listen well.
Mm -hmm. Okay, wonderful. Well, um, so the website for the book is selfishromance.com. And, um, Ellen, do you have anything that you want to plug or promote? To promote? Or anything that you're doing besides the book? Oh, yeah. Well, I have a, I have a radio right. talk show, too, uh, The Rational Basis of Happiness. It's probably on the same themes that you work on. Uh, and that's um, com. D-R-K-E-N-N-E-R.com. But basically, it's our book. It's The Selfish Path to Romance, How to Love with Passion and Reason, inspired by the ideas of Ayn Rand. And most also, if... If any of your listeners have not been introduced to Ayn Rand, mm -hmm. I'm one of those people that can say that Ayn Rand saved my life. Wow. And she, not personally, but I right. read The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged after coming out of Brown University. My degrees from Brown University are hidden in a corner of my office. Atlas Shrugged is right out there. I just discovered how to love my own life, how to... Uh, pursue goals, how to make the most of my life and my romance, romantic life, too, from Ayn Rand. And so I would highly recommend Atlas Shrugged. So and and I, I agree with everything Ellen said and, and changed my whole life, too. But I want to say about our book, it's not a book of gimmicks. So if you're looking for how to get your first date crazy about you, right. <laughs> our book is not for you. Yeah. We deal with substance. We deal with this, with the real substance, substantive issues of relationships, not quickie fixes and cookie role playing tricks. So, if you want to get for something that gives you substantive knowledge about love, um, something that uh, we've spent a lifetime learning and spent eight and a half years writing about, um, uh, I think this is a book worth trying. But it's not gonna. It's not for the people who want quick gimmicks. No. So just for the people that aren't familiar with her, I mean, I know I had never heard of her, unfortunately. Um, just a brief biography of Ayn Rand and why you were inspired by her to write this book. Well, she was born in uh, Russia, uh, was brought up under the Soviets, was able to escape during a time when they let people leave to visit relatives. She visited relatives in Chicago. Uh, that invited her, was able to get out and stay out, and um, moved to Hollywood where she did some screenwriting and married, and then spent the rest of her life, most of the rest of her life, writing uh, novels, of which Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead are the most famous. And there was a survey done some years ago that showed, um, the, asked people what book had the most influence on your life, and the Bible came out first, and Atlas Shrugged came out second. Wow. And, in most, and they're very uh, different. They're totally different. And in mm -hmm. uh, in surveys of favorite books online, um, the English professors don't write Atlas Shrugged at all as worthy of mention. Among readers, it's rated number one. So there's quite a gap between the American public and the professors, uh, at least most professors. Right. So, um, and her philosophy in 30 seconds is reality is real, reason is the only means of knowing it, self-interest is virtuous combined with rational virtues, um, uh, the proper political system is um, capitalism, and she also has a, a totally original theory of art and how art attaches to your deepest level of your soul and why art is important in human life. So she has a 
like Aristotle and others, she has a complete philosophy. All the branches is very revolutionary. Uh, her books are selling at a very rapidly increasing rate. Um, right, I think Atlas in the past is sold over years. a million. Wow. Yeah, but yeah, no, but that's over a million. That's in the past year, right? I think. I. Um, her books. Her, her book. Atlas they, they've just been many, flying off the shelves. It's sold um, many, many and, millions. And. Okay, and for very good reason, you know. It, it what what people discover when reading Atlas Shrugged mm-hmm. is buried within inside almost all of us, you know, criminals and bad, real bad people omitted. But is that nugget uh, that that joy that we felt as a kid, where we just wanted to enjoy life, we wanted to have good friendships, we wanted to feel good about ourselves and other people and pursue our goals. And that's what she taps into, that wonderful motivation that if you're willing to learn how to use your mind better, that you can you can move much closer to your happiness than if you sit back passively or if you try for some method that will never get you there. You need a proper guide, a proper roadmap, and that's what I found in her philosophy. It's consistent and... and the key, oh, one more thing. The key thing that I learned from Ayn Rand is not so much the content of her philosophy, which I agree with. It's the method of how to think for myself independently. Mm-hmm. That's, that's important. Uh, you were going to add something, Ed? We just have a few. Uh, we have just, the, just a the other thing is uh, she loves the heroic in man and identifies what heroism involves, and I love her for that. And she also believes that happiness on earth is possible if you're rational and pursue rational values, unlike many people who say happiness is hopeless and life is no good. So she's, she gives you hope for a happy life in the way that no other author ever gave me. Wow. Right. That's, and it's rational plus passion. But go ahead. Right. That's, that's perfect. That's a great way to end. So, again, the title of the book is The Selfish Path to Romance, How to Love with Passion and Reason with Edwin Locke and Ellen Kenner and the website is selfishromance.com and thank you so much for being on you guys it was fun well, thank you very much oh, thanks yeah. okay. we thank enjoyed you. it take care bye. take care okay bye bye okay well that was quite deep today <laughs> but hey when you have two um, very intelligent um, therapists psychologists then you know that's what's going to happen so I hope you enjoyed it you may have to re-listen to this again to catch a lot of that stuff. Um, I know I'm going to have to. <laughs> uh, anyways, and my website is theartoflove.net, where you can sign up for my free weekly newsletter. My book is at luciaslessonsoflove.net. And until next time, remember that love inspires, empowers, uplifts, and enlightens. You're listening to The Art of Love with your host, Lucia, right here on L.A. Talk Radio.